this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. So once a year, you go to the doctor, right? They take your blood pressure, maybe they prick your finger and they take a little blood and they give you a sense of your cholesterol level. Maybe if you go to one of those fancy healthcare facilities, they get you to run on a treadmill for a while, see how your heart's doing. You get a checkup. The same thing should be true of your business. When we look at your business through the Value Builder score, we're going to look at it through eight key drivers that acquirers care about. Whether you want to sell your business immediately or in 10, 20 years from now, these are the eight factors that business buyers care about. Knowing them now will help you maximize the value of your business going forward. Just go to valuebuilder.com and take the questionnaire. Well, you're in for a special treat because next up, you're going to hear from a guy named Steve Merch. Steve Merch sold Big Oven last year. Big Oven uh, is a recipe app company, but it's much more than that, as he will describe to you. What's really interesting about Steve is it was not his first rodeo. And as we talk about in this episode, he sold a company called Vacation Spot to Expedia for a cool $82 million, and he will tell you the entire story. It is an incredible story, and I've took away a ton of notes. A couple of things to, th- uh, to, to remember from Steve's story. Early on, he talks about how to get Microsoft to write a check, and it's tough. But there's a decision you can get Microsoft to make, and in his case, he got Microsoft to make, which was easier than getting them to write a check. And I think when you're dealing with partners, it may actually be easier to get them to make a decision than to write a check. And Steve does a great job of describing that at Microsoft. He talks about the pros and cons of bootstrapping versus seeking venture capital and a way to sort of think that through in your own case, which I think is great. He talks about some of the hidden tricks and things to look out for, the gotchas with taking venture capital money. Um, And he also really talks a lot about partnerships and how people in the adjacent space to you may be the perfect buyer for your company. Here is Steve Merch. Steve Merch, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thanks, John. So we first met in France. I can remember you walked into a party that someone else was hosting, and I kind of heard you out of the corner of my eye or, or side of like my ear, and saw you out of the corner of my eye, and you were like regaling someone about World War II history. I'm like, who is this? <laughs> who is this geek talking about World War II history? It turns out it's Steve Merch. Do you remember that? Yeah. Yeah, I'm a uh, bit of a World War II buff, and being actually in France, it was great to kind of uh, see some of those things. But sure, I could I could totally believe that. Also, I guess the American accent is a bit hard to avoid when you're a Canadian. You listen right, to those, right, right. And and I can remember we were both there because I think we'd recently um, had exits of sorts, and we were kind of on a bit of a, a break. I remember you were working on Big Oven, and I think you said it was like. A, a big, you know, sandbox for uh, for an entrepreneur. Like you get to try things and experiment. Do you, do you remember that conversation? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And that was very much what the Big Oven Project really was for me. It was a labor of love. And, uh, you know, I, I love to cook and I started a, a recipe site and then um, the iPhone came out and uh, it seemed like a pretty good uh, thing to have a bunch of recipes on a phone. And we were the first recipe app for the iPhone and for Android. And it kind of kind of took off after uh, after releasing it on mobile. But yeah. yeah, it was largely throughout the process, mostly an exercise to force me to stay current in technology. Um, and it was it was a really fun project to work on. I want to talk to about Big Oven, but there's a story before Big Oven, which of course is Vacation Spot. Um, take me through Vacation Spot. What was the business idea that you were chasing in this company? Right. So Vacation Spot was really one of the first. uh, And we started, I think, roughly the same month that VRBO.com started, um, which many of your listeners might know. It was a vacation rental site uh, that I started in um, 1997. Um, I uh, I was at Microsoft at the time and uh, leading the Internet Games Group there. And I really uh, wanted to start a company. And I had two main ideas. One was because my wife and I had just gotten married, the process of 
finding and reserving event space uh, was incredibly cumbersome. And I really felt that in the age of the internet, it should be, you know, easy to say, show me all the areas in the, in the Seattle, there all the event spaces in the um, Seattle area that are available for this particular weekend with these facilities that can have this many people. That problem is still, by the way, one that's, that's uh, not well sorted, I think. Um, but uh, also my dad at the time, my mom and dad both owned some vacation property and they owned it in particular in Florida and they lived in the Northeast. And when my dad would go talk to the property managers saying, hey, how are you renting out this vacation home? The property manager would say, well, we've taken out ads in the local newspaper. Uh, it was in Marco Island, Florida. Um, and, uh, and my dad would say, well, that's kind of crazy because most of the people who want to reserve are not going to get a copy of the Marco Island Times. They're generally in kind of the, the Northeast um, or the Eastern Seaboard. Um, and uh, he and I were talking kind of for a year or two as the internet revolution started. Um, and I really felt that that would be an interesting uh, space to explore. You know, it's, it's a, for, from a consumer standpoint, it's a, it's a, there's a high cost of getting that decision wrong. I love the markets where the, high, the cost of failure is, is quite high. And if you plan a vacation and spend a lot of money and get on an airplane and go somewhere and the lodging isn't right, that can ruin your week or, you know, or your overnight or, or the vacation that you've saved up for. Um, and then from the property owner's standpoint, it's got a lot of economic functions that are really interesting because it's perishable inventory um, and it's expensive. Um, and, and economically, you should be willing to, you know, right now in, in Maui, uh, there are probably many, many condos and apartments and vacation homes that are going to be available, they're going to be vacant this weekend that the owners are probably willing economically to, to sell you for roughly the cost, their variable cost, which is slightly more than the, cost of housekeeping or, you know, and the conditioner bill or whatever. Yeah. So that, so, you know, having, having studied, uh, you know, business and business school and kind of particularly being kind of fascinated with the, the efforts of, you know, Robert Crandall and American Airlines to do some yield management. The idea of kind of getting the extra marginal dollar out of these expensive things. You're geeking out again on me. Yeah, totally. (laughs) marginal dollar yeah okay. yeah, yeah. <laughs> i would yeah it's it's really it's a lot of dollars yeah so sorry no we no, can I, talk about world war ii no i don't want to talk about <laughs> no i'm just i'm just joking with you so there's there's this inventory that's going to perish and and so that's what you guys uh were offering um home uh, on the vacation owner perspective from that side of the marketplace, if you will, um, the ability to list that property and dynamically price it based on demand. Now I'm geeking out. Yeah, that was that was kind of the longer term vision. You know, this is back, rewind the videotape back to 1997. And really, we were competing against newspapers and classified advertisement at the time. And Craigslist was only then getting off the ground. And even that's not still not a very good place to, you know, to do high end luxury, you know, vacation rental, uh, uh, you know, properties. Um, so we really felt that, you know, having looked at the hotel market, um, there was a pretty uh, good space for us to get into where if we could amass enough listings initially via a listing style model, a newspaper style model where, you know, property owners and or property managers would pay us $200 a year for a standard listing and then some extra dollars for, um, you know, promotion within that, that we could transition that into, you know, an e-commerce business where we basically took that inventory and then uh, provided, you know, a real-time reservation platform, somewhat akin to, you know, OpenTable uh, today. Yeah. Um, it would require some sort of software on the property manager's, you know, um, premise, whether that's a browser-based piece of software or whether it's a, a downloadable kind of desktop piece of software, which is what we initially started out with. Um, because again, in 1997, these are the days of like America Online and, um, Getting you know, Getting CDs in the mail from Steve Case. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, okay. So let me see if I got the economics right. So um, you're essentially um, charging the owner of the property to list it on vacation spot so that you get correct. some money owner, from them. Owner and or property manager. Yeah, owner correct. Or, so you get a chunk of money from them. And then do you also take a transaction fee from the, the vacationer who is booking the property? 
It was an either or kind of model. There are generally kind of three different models that are tackled in this space. The first is a is a listing style model where you go after the, you know, it's an advertising um, kind of brochureware type platform that's searchable. That's a fairly easy one to understand. It's kind of a classified ad style model. Pay us a listing fee and we would, you know, be happy to accept those those dollars from a property manager who is entrusted with marketing the property and, and holding the key and reserving it. Or we'd certainly be happy to, to take that from the property owner themselves if they act as the manager for that property. Um, the second model that kind of takes place in the travel world is, is the agent model, where when a booking happens, and in lodging, this is the traditional way that this is done, is when a, when a booking happens, the booking information is confirmed, there may be a deposit that's involved, but generally on the back end, once the stay has been completed, there's payment, there's some sort of agent-based commission, usually on the order of you know 10%, 6%, somewhere in there, depending on what's been negotiated, that gets paid back to the um, travel agent that, that books uh, that that sends that you know paying customer that way, and then the, the third, which is the the kind of the revolution that Expedia really started, that actually kind of began the moment that that Expedia ultimately bought us, and it was one of the reasons that they were buying us, was the is the so-called merchant model, where. Uh, Expedia in this case, or the, the the travel merchant, actually is the one that accepts the payment at the time the booking is made. They collect the cash. They collect, let's say, a thousand dollars for it. They hang on to that. They they communicate with the owner of the property, saying, "We've got this booking. This person's arriving on this date, departing on that date. We're going to hold on to this money, and then." When the booking happens, we'll send you, you know, 80% of that money or 90% of that money, um, and that's the merchant model where the where the merchant in the middle is making that <clears throat> making that transaction, um, and and that has, you know, as as most of your listeners and I'm sure you kind of immediately, you know, can figure out that has a lot of economic niceties to it. Um, not only are you getting the cash up front. You benefit when there's so-called breakage, when there's mm -hmm. a cancellation, when somebody doesn't, you know, somebody occasionally somebody will make these bookings. And this happens all the time in the destination services market, the so-called, you know, uh, sunset cocktail hour cruises or horseback riding or whatever. Somebody might book the, the activity ahead of time and then say, you know, I've kind of got a hangover. I don't really feel like it. I'm not going to capitalize on this service. And that's 100 percent margin for travel providers. That's, you know, cruise ships make a lot of money in that kind of um, role. Um, but it also allows you to do bundling. It allows you to, you know, price areas, put things on sale. You know, once you're actually in control of the pricing, it becomes a really, and you collect the cash sometimes a couple months or even a year in yeah, advance. Yeah, you have to float. You have to Not, float. Yeah, and, yeah. So it's, it's enormously beneficial. Got it. Okay. So, so which of the three did you guys start and how did it, how did it evolve over time? Yep. So we started with the classified listing model, and that still at the time that we were acquired was probably 60 plus percent of our revenue. Um, and, you know, we didn't really have enough market power to establish the merchant model, because in order to be a merchant, you really have to have enough. At Expedia, we called this the fire hose of demand. <laughs> you need to have enough people, you know, to be the fireman or the, the firefighter holding the hose and directing it at the right, you know, property. You need to have enough demand coming to your kind of site in order to, to marshal that kind of power to for economic, you know, rent effectively. Um, but we did at Vacation Spot, we did implement the agent model. And, and uh, that actually worked fairly well, although collections initially and in as we began to roll it out became a little bit of a hounding effort where you'd have to kind of hound the property manager and and we implemented various things that would sort of you know improve their search engine presence if they were good citizens and all these different you know aspects that the internet and now mobile apps kind of let you do to encourage good um neighborly behavior um so we would you know if if property managers or property owners kept their availability calendar up to date, that would bump them up in sort order. So that when you searched for, uh, you know, a, a, a Tuscany vacation rental, if the if the property manager of that 
didn't happen to update it for three or four months and it got stale, um, then uh, it would begin to drift that property down. Um, and we had various kind of, you know, rewards that we also implemented, you know, some of the early things that came out during that period were, you know, uh, review this property, follow-ups when they get there, putting them directly in touch if there's a problem. You know, a lot of those things were somewhat new in the in the classified newspaper age of 1997, 98. Yeah. So take us take us fast forward a little bit. Um, how how were you financing the business? You, you refer to a we. Were, were there investors in the company? Was it just you? Yeah. So the it, the way it started really was I have to probably take maybe two months prior to departing Microsoft. So. Um, well, actually, even in 95, 94 and 95, I shared an office with uh, a guy named Rich Barton, who um, was off working on, I was working on some CD-ROMs at Microsoft in the area of wine and film, which was the biggest boondoggle I think I've ever seen. How do you get that awesome. gig? <laughs> it was great. Whole separate podcast there. Uh, that was just great. Um, but so I was working, it was the age of kind of the CD-ROM era, and Microsoft wanted to produce 100 CD-ROMs. ROMs in the consumer space. And we had things like dinosaurs, you know, Microsoft dinosaurs and encyclopedias. And we had a thing called Cinemania that I worked on that was a Roger Ebert film directory. And we had a wine guide. We had a bunch of CD-ROMs. And my office mate, Rich Barton, was working on a nascent effort that would be a bunch of CD-ROMs about travel. And that was what became Expedia. It was called, you know, Microsoft Travel initially, and it was envisioned as a series of CD-ROMs, the first one actually being France. Uh, and then included in that CD-ROM would be a travel agent that would help you get to France. And uh, and uh, Greg Slingstad, who was a, a longtime Microsoft veteran, uh, worked on things like Microsoft Word and ran the Microsoft Japan office and a bunch of other things, a great veteran, re really great guy. He came in and he he uh, he and Rich Barton basically birthed um, the uh, product that was going to become Expedia out of, uh, you know, the, the uh, very group that produced all those CD-ROMs. It was the most successful, was definitely the most successful spin out that Microsoft's ever had um, and making that friendship and those connections with the Expedia team in that time was was uh, turned out to be really you know, fortuitous and really useful to the to vacation spots life. Um, I sought out. You know, I really wanted to build the the vacation rental business. I I ended up moving from the Cinemania project to the Internet Games Group and worked on that for a couple of years, um, and worked on you know what what is now Xbox Live, uh, basically kind of internet matchmaking and avatars and other stuff, and that was great. But I really wanted to start a company. So I left and started this vacation rental thing and I built a prototype uh, website. And then the first person that I sought out to get some feedback was was Greg Slingstad and also Rich uh, Barton, just to kind of because they Greg had just left Microsoft as well. Um, and because he had officially retired. Uh, but one of the things with Greg is that he never really fully retires. He always does these amazing different things anyway. I, I sought out his advice mostly to try to get him to tear apart the advice and tell me all the ways that he thought it was wrong, which he certainly did. And he was he was right in the ways that he described all the ways I was wrong. But to my surprise, about a week, uh, a couple of days after we met, he said, hey, do you want a partner? And I said, absolutely. The you know, the kind of founder of Expedia, I'd love to have a board. And he had a lot of knowledge. And we were uh, partners from then on. I was technically, I guess I was CEO and chairman and he was COO and um, uh, but but he was as much an equal partner, if not more so, uh, in kind of all the insight that he brought into the business. So Greg, this is Greg. Greg, yeah, Greg Slingstad. Got it. And then Rich. So once Greg left, Rich was in charge of what became Expedia, and Rich was the instrumental guy in the spin out of of Expedia from Microsoft. Um, as a side note, it was a, a sort of a dramatic moment where where Rich actually had uh, <laughs> some travel cards, travel ID cards printed, travel agent ID cards printed, and kind of slammed them down at the at a Microsoft board meeting one time and said, you know, they, they had Bill Gates's picture and Steve Ballmer's pictures on them. And he said, do you guys want to be travel agents? Because that's what, that's what we need to be. And uh, 
And ultimately they decided, you know, we're kind of a software company and we think this is probably better to spin out as its own separate thing. And that spin out happened in 2000. Uh, or maybe 19, maybe 1999. So uh, how did you and Greg get the money to kind of float vacation spot? Yeah, thanks. So, so returning now to your actual question, because <laughs> all of that, all of that, hopefully all of that was hopefully background for what might make sense now. Super. So, so Greg and I were fortunate enough to have been at Microsoft so we could do some initial seed capital. I think I put in 130K and, and Greg put in 70. Uh, so we had sort of $200,000 initially to work with. And then we, you know, continued with the initial hiring effort and getting an office and building out, you know, a team of maybe it was probably about a dozen people. Meanwhile, we were talking to angels, angel investors in Seattle, uh, ran into a great guy who had worked at uh, Getty Images, um, um, Tom Hughes, who's a quite a well-known entrepreneur in the Seattle area. He became pretty interested and in, in his, his VC company, um, Cedar Grove Investments, made the initial kind of um, seed investment in us. Um, and then we, you know, wanted to raise more capital. Uh, we had maybe at that point, 700,000. I'm, I'm not sure what the numbers are exactly, but maybe 500 to 700K at that point in an angel round. And we've, I, I should probably pause here and say that we very much wanted to be Microsoft's uh, at the time, it wasn't Expedia wasn't spun out, but we very much felt that uh, online travel, whether it was preview travel, um, which was AOL's online travel offering, or Travelocity, or Microsoft Travel, which really became Expedia, were all going to be pretty important. And we wanted deals to be their exclusive vacation rental provider. Getting back to that kind of fire hose of demand. Um, point. If we can harness enough consumer demand shopping for vacation rentals, we we thought we would have a pretty powerful position um, to be able to you know uh, shift the model ultimately. So 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 we uh, having been at Microsoft, I knew that there was kind of um, some complexities around. Uh, there's a there's a decision making process that involves Microsoft writing a check that are that's very complex, and there's one that's very easy um, where a where a um, group manager, in this case, Rich Barton, could could kind of make a decision without having to get Microsoft's financial, you know, wherewithal to approve uh, all the way up the chain. So we said, look, how about if you guys take a, a you know, a, we'll give you, I think it was even, you know, 20 percent of equity in this fledgling startup company in return for a perpetual, you know, agreement to be their exclusive vacation rental uh, provider with some stipulations around what that kind of definition meant. Um, and so for no cash, we basically got Microsoft, uh, we, we became Microsoft's vacation rental, kind of exclusive vacation rental partner, which allowed us to, you know, to then build the business. Um, uh, and, and, uh, and, and, and Rich joined our, our board of directors. Uh, he was always a, an advocate and a, and a great ally to have. And, and certainly Greg as the COO of the company, um, you know, we had pretty strong roots back uh, with that mothership, if you will. Wow. So, so many questions around that. So when Microsoft spun out Expedia, were you at risk at losing the exclusive deal? No, no. To my knowledge, we were not. And I'm sure our, our investors and lawyers would have, and, and I <laughs> would have, would have been alerted to the that fact. I think the deal was fairly because we we gave them a fairly substantial stake essentially for that agreement. So the consideration on our side was was a fairly large chunk of the equity of the company, um, and we valued that pretty highly. Um, but everything was also at that time and still is, you know, moving really fast. So um, we knew just strategically. I mean, it was pretty clear that 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 Microsoft cared a lot about the airline and large hotel space, and they cared about international expansion. They didn't really care that much about our space at all. Um, and they knew that we were the, the box that got checked and they were really anxious to, to help us in any way, kind of capture that for them. Um, so it was a really, I think it was a really beneficial, it was one of, the, one of those cases in technology and they're sometimes pretty rare where the incentives really did align pretty well. And it was that 
kind of exchange of, of a fairly substantial chunk of equity that I think caused that. Love it. It's it's a, a very obviously foreshadowed the the ultimate acquisition, but was was a key component of that. Um, I find it fascinating. Yeah, Steve, absolutely. I know a lot of our listeners are struggle with putting a value on an early stage business. So here you guys are. It's you and Greg. You each kick in um, in total a couple hundred grand. So you, you've got some you know stake in the business or some some some. Um, some equity in the company. How did you, what advice would you give for other early stage entrepreneurs trying to stick a value on their company? Because in the beginning, it's, I mean, put your finger in the air. There's, it's just, you're, it's a guess, isn't it? Sure is. Yeah. I mean, the, the MBA and us would kind of say, well, you've got to do a net present value of future cash flows. And that's really ultimately what it comes down to. And what's your discount rate and whatnot in spaces with a lot of, you know, it's hard to do an expected value calculation on the, you know, quote unquote, capturing the vacation rental market. And as, as we found out from 1997 until now, you know, we didn't we we didn't adequately anticipate, say, the Airbnbs of the world and the other ones. We, we actively considered, you know, becoming a merchant for the those uh, property owners. We felt there were a lot of legal risks in doing that. So we always kind of shied away from that. We had on valuation. We had certainly spreadsheets that would that were pretty useful in figuring out what our what our going forward revenues and profitability would be three years, five years from now, um, or from you know from 1997. And we tracked those and we adjusted them. We also had the market, in this case, the investor market, speaking pretty loudly to us. So, so this was 1997 and and 1998 and 99, uh, and we did a couple of capital raises. We did the the first ones, which I described, um, that set a valuation on it. And part of it was, you know, we want the best partners, but we also want a pretty good valuation. So we had, you know, in 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 our main, I guess we called it a B round, but basically we had we had institutional VCs. We had sort of, you know, the name brand, one of the big name brand, you know, VCs in the in the Northwest is Madrona Venture Group. Um, we had them leading around uh, around that. Um, we it came down to selecting either. We had term sheets from both uh, Kleiner Perkins, Caulfield Byers, uh, and um, one one from a, a lesser known VC company called Technology Crossover Ventures, or TCV. And one little parenthetical note was the the associate who was doing the due diligence on us came up. Um, and stayed with us for a couple of days. And he kept talking about this company on off time at coffee break. He's like, you know, this other company that I'm looking at, it really wants to send, you know, send DVDs by a mail. And I don't really know. It's this company, Netflix. I mean, what do you think about Blockbuster? Sure is a powerful company, aren't they? You know, and uh, luckily, well, not luckily, but to their great foresight, TCV invested pretty heavily in, in the initial several rounds in Netflix and they, and Peloton. And, you know, they, they're, they're kind of an amazing, you know, they, if you look at their portfolio of companies, we, we chose those guys cause we liked them, not because the valuation was better, but because their partnership was a lot better. We, um, so they, they set a really, you know, Kleiner Perkins set a valuation and TCV kind of matched it. And, um, and it was based on, you know, if we're successful, we think we can do this. And it was also partially based on, we don't think we need capital right now, but if you want to be a part of this, it was, you know, it was a seller's market of, of equity back then. That's for sure. And, and to what extent is Rich and the team back in Microsoft going, oh man, did we, did we just give away the farm here? This 20% stake in this, this company, I guess, is being valued higher and higher, but at the same time, maybe we left a chunk of money on the table. Why didn't, why didn't we start vacation spot and instead of giving all this to Steve and was there any sentiment <laughs> I, I don't like think that rich ever thought that rich had his has his sights on a much bigger kind of overall global travel marketplace was what it was called at the time and really um you know Expedia now does you know billions of dollars in in uh, online travel sales they were happy with their growth and I think they were probably also thinking this isn't something we can we can also take on and do it well. And, and Microsoft, you know, uh, at the time at least, and I think they've now rekindled that. But they had a real focus on 
core competence and if it isn't really something that that you want to you know be number one or number even number two at don't do it and i think there was you know in rich's case he was actually really happy to on a personal level i think he was happy um you know being an integral part of a his first of many um you know entrepreneurial uh successes he he ended up you know of course staying at expedia um through the IPO, was a phenomenal CEO, then left after Barry Diller bought a controlling interest in Expedia, and he left and he started Zillow.com. And then he also had an idea at a lunch break, and 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 that started Glassdoor.com. And so he's had three or maybe more, I don't even remember, at this point, multi-billion dollar, literally, I mean, it's not an exaggeration, you know, multi-billion dollar successes uh, of notches in his belt with, with partners and, and friends, but, but he's a guy who, um, who's been really interesting and, and I've been happy to know for, for a while. A smart cat for sure, whom I've never met, but it sounds just the way you describe him. He's a, a smart cookie for sure. Yeah. Here's, a, here's another question. So as I understand it, and tell me if I'm, if I'm asking a question that's, that's too private, but, but you've had with Big Oven, you didn't go the venture capital route. As I understand it, you sort of kept the the equity uh, more closely held. Is that right? Yeah. yeah totally. So you've done both. Yep. And I know there's a lot of listeners out there going, um, sounds like a lot of you know hands in the pie. By the time you get diluted, you're doing A rounds and B rounds and sharing all this equity with Microsoft. You're down to something less than 100% for, for you um, versus the big oven experience where you, you were able to, to retain that. How do you, how would you coach an entrepreneur trying to decide, do I, do I go big, take on a bunch of outside investors versus do I keep all of the equity, but know that I might grow something smaller than like, how would you coach someone through that decision? Yeah, there's so many, it's such a great question. And, and it could probably be, you know, an episode or two of a podcast alone. But I have a couple of thoughts on that. I mean, I've loved both of those kind of ways of doing it, the kind of VC wind at your back, raise a bunch of capital and, and just to peg it in vacation spots case, I think we raised a total of $13 million in the life of the company. And when we sold to Expedia, we still had 11 million in the bank. So we were still fairly frugal spenders. We were not, in fact, the, the main reason that we turned down Kleiner Perkins was they very they were you know very interested in the business. They thought it was great, but this was during the era of raise a bunch of money from VCs and do some Super Bowl ads kind of thing. And and we got the vibe from them like how quickly would you be ready to have a thirty million dollar marketing budget or whatever? And Greg and I were both saying, hold on, we only have you know ten thousand properties. We don't even have properties in I don't know Orlando at the time or whatever it was. We just didn't think we could fulfill the demand. So we sensed at that point we had more of a demand side driven partner or prospective investor partner that was not aligned with with the kind of the more even growth that we wanted. Um, so back to the kind of bootstrapping versus VC, I see it, I guess, a little bit like maybe a, you know, those slider bars that you see in user interfaces, you've got a slider bar and you can kind of only choose, you know, where do you want to be on the spectrum mm-hmm. of, of uh, and on one side, the bootstrapping side, I'd probably label that, you know, maximum control. Um, and on the, on the VC side, if you've got the slider bar all the way over on the VC side, you really have accelerated impact. Um, the benefit of that is, you know, accelerate your impact. And, and um, it, assuming one doesn't have access to infinite capital oneself, you know, you have to go to outside parties. And if you really are in a market where you want to accelerate your impact quickly, and in the case of uh, Vacation Spot, the market that we were in, you know, there were absolutely first mover advantages to getting, you know, a, a property or, you know, a, uh, getting 90% of the Lake Tahoe ski condos, you know, on our platform makes it that much more difficult for the next vendor who came along. We thought there was, you know, a market window and, you know, markets like open tables, restaurant market and, and many kind of tech related markets. Um, have that property, but not all of them. You know, the recipe spot, the recipe space, the kind of consumer cooking space, I wouldn't say has that as much because the incremental cook to to get your 
you know, grocery list installed um, isn't necessarily going to be, you know, absolutely locked in. We aren't even locked into, you know, office suites or word processors the way that we uh, at Microsoft maybe 15 years ago would have guessed that people are. People are bouncing back and forth between, you know, Google Docs and Microsoft Word and other things. It's becoming a little more fluid in some spaces in the consumer space. Hmm. But on the on the supplier side, particularly the, you know, the kind of marketplace businesses like Vacation Spot, if you've got, you know, a supplier that has pretty high switching costs to either, you know, put all their inventory and accounting system in one in one platform, namely yours or your competitors, it's probably a good idea to accelerate your impact in that business. And I'm not sure I would recommend bootstrapping for a for a kind of a lodging marketplace business. So where there's a need to capture market share or mind share quickly, the VC space is probably the, the way to go. Yeah. And and there may be two other layers on this. Mm-hmm. The, the second one is a is a personal one. And the reason the main reason that I chose the the boots to bootstrap my big oven business was uh, I knew at the time that I, you know, my wife and I wanted to live abroad and it, it became France where we met you guys and many other great people. Um, and I really didn't want the guilt or responsibility. You know, when you take money from outside parties, you have the responsibility. Uh, and I didn't really think it was right for me to accept you know, money from outside parties and then say, you know what, I've had this lifelong dream to live abroad and goodbye. (laughs) And uh, that's just not fair. And nor did I really want to necessarily, you know, have it establish an office and phone in every now and then and still have the kind of, you know, CEO on hiatus kind of thing. I really just wanted to have it live or die, uh, you know, with my under my own control. And it wasn't so much a I need the sort of greedy control of doing it. It was more minimizing the regret of mishandling capital or not being responsible with people's, you know, dollars that they're investing in things. Um, so that was a personal freedom aspect to it. And then the last, I guess, is that, you know, there, we're told, of course, in business school that that the kind of business that you decide is going to determine your capital requirements and you you kind of go and figure out what sort of capital requirements you need by doing a a cash burn thing what i so i understand i i get that line of reasoning what i way underestimated was the reverse is also true the kind of capital that you raise also impacts the kind of decisions that you make and the businesses that you do build. Um, so in vacation or in, in vacation spot space, because we had, you know, there were times that we had, you know, uh, $10 million in, in the bank and that even, even a fairly aggressive hiring spend would, would, you know, uh, be, that would be pretty adequate probably before the next capital raise. It allowed us to be a little bit more, um, you know, aggressive in in market testing and doing some other things. In the case of Big Evan, where it was all, you know, needed to kind of uh, run from its own capital, it forced a, a kind of parsimonious uh, decision making on on different things. And that that kind of discipline is also a good one, I think, if you're, you know, if you're in the right mindset to to do that. So. A sort of follow-up question around the. I know you've you've also uh, been an advisor to a number of businesses. You've seen a lot of term sheets. I think in in your career, what are some of the 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 gotchas, the sleazy uh, you know terms that VCs try to pull the wool over first-time entrepreneurs with? Yeah. So so I guess first I'd I'd make a little asterisk of a note and and say, you know, we entrepreneurs on the kind of Entrepreneurs, I'd need to probably caution ourselves with the kind of, you know, uh, ascribing motives to. You know, there are probably some, and I'm sure there are some. I've certainly heard of some, you know, unethical VCs. But it's a reasonable assumption that a VC puts dollars into a business, believing in the team and believing in the opportunity, and they're not just necessarily trying to to be, you know, jerks or steal control of a company. I'm not saying you're implying that. I'm just well, I was some implying, of your listeners. <laughs> well, to any listener who who has that. I said sleazy. You didn't say it. You, the vast majority of VCs that I've run into um, are, are good, you know, are ones who really are like, 
they want the best for the business. They may, you may disagree on what is the best for the business, but I think we entrepreneurs need to sometimes be open to the idea that they may be right, mm -hmm. <laughs> that they've seen, that they've seen a lot of, you know, things like that. They've seen this movie before and they might actually have the right idea. Having said that. Yeah. So a couple things I'd say probably liquidation preference is one of the big, um, gotchas. Uh, I was uh, chairman of the board after, um, uh, the vacation spot experience, we were acquired by Expedia. I was a, a VP at Expedia for a while. I really, really enjoyed that. Um, I was approached by another company in the vacation rental space, space named Escapia, somewhat confusingly named um, Escapia, which was basically building a vacation spot 2.0 and, and built a property, still has a very good vacation rental property management system that's web-based. That's a very good product. We ultimately were bought by um, HomeAway, and HomeAway in turn was bought by Expedia. But in the Escapia process, one of the lessons that, that I've learned is, um, you know, that uh, the liquidation preferences can be, you know, um, areas of the term sheet that you really want to kind of look into when, when you're acquired for something that isn't necessarily, you know, at the level that all investors have put, you know, dollars into, you want to be sure to do that math before you do additional rounds. Um, there I'm, confu I'm confused. Sorry. So let's, let's take Escapia out of the equation. Let's imagine just like, uh, ABC widgets. Yeah. Uh, explain in a layman's terms, what you mean by liquidation preference and what's the gotcha? Like what, what do we need to watch out for? Yeah. So there are uh, provisions in, in term sheets uh, often that are liquidation preferences that basically are preferred rights for investors in say uh, the, the third round, the, the C round or the B round, they, they can exist in any round, but you typically see them get more and more aggressive as the rounds go on. And they say, in the event that you know the company is sold for below what you know uh, investors have put into it over the over the time, we get our money first before anybody who is prior in in prior rounds gets gets money back. And in some cases, they get it back at a multiple. So so an investor in the C round might say, okay, well I'm willing to put in another you know couple million dollars into this business, but in the event of a sale, you need to give, I get the first, you know, couple million dollars back. And by the way, I'm going to put a three X liquidation preference on it. So I get 6 million back before, before anybody else does before prior rounds do. And, um, you know, that, as you can imagine, can be, you know, and, and often it's employees who are kind of last in line, which is a, quite a shame um, because employees get, you know, common shares, typically some of the, you know, the first shares that are issued. So it becomes, uh, you know, not in a, uh, it, it becomes an equi equity issue, an equitable issue um, uh, in, in, uh, in terms of something that the whole board should be very cognizant of. Also, when you have a company that is somewhat, you know, capital short, where investors say, we don't want to continue to, to, you know, put money into this, but uh, you find yourself needing the support of, of service providers. Sometimes service providers, whether they be marketing companies or ones that provide product support or design or partners might say, well, I'll take my money in, in equity. Thank you very much. That's great. And those terms, those equity terms may sometimes, you know, come with extra little clauses like those uh, liquidation preferences that, that you really need to do the math on it. You need to do some sort of, um, I can't recall the name of it, but you basically need a spreadsheet that, that, that shows you for any given sale price of the company, you know, where does that cash, how does that cash get allocated? And do you think it's fair in a likely scenario, in a disaster scenario, or in a home run scenario? Awesome. So watch out for the liquidity preferences. Yeah. Great stuff. Was there a second that you were a second? Um, um, I guess it's related to the service providers Got that can, okay. and, yeah, and that that's somewhat of an ongoing um, thing. And in, in in some businesses can can have service providers join, and and the board doesn't you know uh, necessarily isn't necessarily always you know aware of or kept apprised of the you know the the drain of that service provider on 
on things like the dilution of the the stock in the company. So that's important to monitor, and the board should uh, you know place some some very clear limits around. Hey, don't keep using the service provider who's not costing us any cash. You know, it, because you know it, when you go to a board meeting, sometimes. Uh, the emphasis is all on the revenue and the profits and, you know, how the customer pipeline and new products and development and the cap table, the capitalization table is also something that very much needs, you know, uh, I think an update at every single board meeting. And you should really keep an eye on like, okay, how many new shares have been issued due to this kind of uh, partnership, let's say, that that might exist. That's super helpful. I want to go jump forward to the the uh, the kind of rest of the story as it relates to Vacation Spot. So, all t- so you have this partnership with Expedia. Uh, they are, you know, they, for in return for a twenty percent stake in the company, they're basically turning their marketing funnel onto you, and any vacation rentals are getting punted your way. How big do you get the company before you decide to sell it? Like in terms of revenue right. or number of employees or whatever. Yeah, so we actually, in the course of Vacation Spot, in the course of really just a couple of years, we acquired seven different companies. We were getting to scale as quickly as possible. So we were wanting to get to scale. We acquired, you know, some of the early vacation rental companies. It was a model that that HomeAway ended up uh, using uh, very soon thereafter. After you know, we were then part of Expedia to do a uh, what's called a roll up. You know, in the in the category of just kind of picking off all these different vacation rental directories. Um, we got it to twenty five thousand properties. Uh, listed on our platform, um, some of which were using the agency model to book, some of which were just paying us a flat fee, um, and uh, and at that time, you know, we I can't remember exactly how the conversation went, but because Rich was part of our our board, he saw the the growth in listings, and they and Expedia had made a strategic decision at that point to to really double down on lodging um, and and make a pretty big push on lodging uh, as a thematic push for a couple of years and wanted uh, to, to get aggressive in that space. And we were part of a, a, a two company acquisition that Expedia did um, in January of 2000. Uh, and-, and so your 25,000 properties, how many employees working at Vacation Spot at the time? I think the number was 65 okay. at the time. Got it. Got it. And so, um, so, so Rich obviously wanted to make a play for Vacation Spot. Did you guys do a, a kind of a pro- proprietary deal where you and Rich just worked it out together? Did you hire bankers and take the company to market? How did that work? No, we did not hire bankers. We did have very good uh, venture capitalists on our on our side, and we, you know, uh, asked. Uh, rich to stay out of those conversations, and and we had you know very good a very good uh, you know legal counsel uh, focused very much in the kind of high tech space and was quite expert at that and and um, and our between our venture capitalists and we had also had a few other partnerships. We may have it's been now twenty plus years, twenty one years. God, that well. Yeah, eight, 18 years, I guess, since the acquisition. Um, uh, but I, I'm sure that I made a few calls to the, you know, preview travels of the world or Travelocity or some others saying, uh, can't tell you anything specific, but would you be interested in making an offer? And uh, I think I may have alerted the other likely candidates. Um but it also might have been true uh, that that you know I know that having been on the other side while I was at Microsoft and Expedia inherited a lot of the the kind of same DNA from Microsoft but but there were generally no shop provisions that happen when when somebody puts a term sheet and says hey we'd like to to take a detailed look at your business here's a tentative offer if you sign this you have a kind of a no shop period of two weeks or three weeks well you know because we don't want you to go then take this information so we abided by that but I, I imagine you know uh if if it were not in place i would have picked up a phone and and talked to a likely other supplier but you know as you can probably tell from my story and we're seattle based we had you know i i have always been very uh in in uh interested in caring about the 
the life lives of the employees that, you know, entrust their work life in the ventures that I work on. And so, you know, staying in Seattle was a pretty big part of the desire as well. So the, the question, as I recall, it came down prim- primarily to should we stay independent and continue to either rely on the capital that we do have um, and or raise more capital or should we be part of Expedia? And, and sorry, yeah. no, and sorry, and Expedia had fairly recently gone public and it was a pretty natural way to convert our equity into something that the par- public market valued uh, well, and and I guess it is public in the press release that the that the price was eighty two million eighty two million in Expedia stock, um, and it, <laughs> we really lucked out in timing because the the um, the time of that conversion was in within one week of the all time low of Expedia shares in its history. So it went on to do about a ten x on uh, uh, on that number from probably in the, over the next three years or four years. So it, it was, it, it was really, it was pretty fortuitous and it was a sleepy home run, um, that, that not a lot of people, uh, quite know about. Well, now they do. Yeah. I guess so. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so fantastic. So they bought the company for $82 million at a time when their stock was in the toilet. Right. They, you then, and, and all, all stocks, all stocks were. Yeah. yeah just, no, I didn't mean to suggest yeah, it was. An, yep, yep. Yeah. It was just the, the times. Uh, if you go back to two thousand one, uh, and then this is an interesting point of view from because there's a lot of people out there who are wondering about stock offers, like accepting some of their compensation in the form of stock as opposed to cash. Um, how? What were the provisions around? you guys being able to sell that Expedia stock? As it turns out, you probably wouldn't have wanted to, but would you have been able to? Or how did we think through that? Yeah, that's that's a really interesting, you know, I, I, it's been 20 plus years, so it's it's hard to know the exact details. But I, I do know that for executives, certainly there was a lockup um, for a couple of years and there were, you know, there was vesting over time. And uh, and Microsoft certainly, you know, their general vesting philosophy is generally over a four to five year period. Uh, it might be currently four and a half years, but but basically they sort of tranched that out over four ish years or so. And I, I think we were probably unwilling to put it on that full clock, but I imagine that it was more like a year and a half or something. Um, what Expedia was building at the time was very exciting to me and to Greg and to other people to be part of. So we were, you know, happy to, and we really liked the team and it was a lot of fun. So there was really not much downside for us personally to, to sign up for uh, that. Uh, the, the larger team, we presented, you know, uh, everybody got had an offer basically uh, at Expedia, and it was an important part of the deal that they had an offer that they could evaluate and, and either accept or or decline. They may have had um, more loose. I, I know that I would have argued for it. I don't know if we got it. I don't recall if we got it, but they may have had more um, ease, easy uh, restrictions around uh, when and how to convert that. Um, and then the decision on on when to do that would, of course, be their own. Um, I was certainly of the mindset back then that we, were, you know, it was day one of uh, of online travel, and that it was probably worth a shot to hang on to it for a little while. Yeah, it sounds like it uh, it worked out well. I, I, I could talk to you for hours. I, I let me let's wrap with a quick conversation around Big Oven because you've uh, you've now sold a number of companies, uh, including Vacation Spot and Escapia and others. But but Big Oven was your most recent. Um, I guess it was acquired last year. Is that right? Yep. Yep. That's right. December of yeah. Coming up on a year, and I understand there was a lesson here that you learned in the in the vacation spot Expedia about kind of keeping your potential acquirers close. Maybe talk a little bit about that lesson. Yeah, yeah, ab- yeah, ab- absolutely. So, so many of your listeners who work in the kind of tech space know that there's a 
uh, you know, a thing called an API, an application programming interface. Um, Big, Big Oven is a, you can go to bigoven.com and kind of check out what it is. It's a recipe app for home cooks, um, that it's a social network where home cooks can post recipes, but they can also make grocery lists, menu plans. Um, one of the cool things is you can, you know, drag and drop recipes onto a calendar and then generate a grocery list for any date range. One of the the kind of long-term visions of the business was to enable online shopping, that if we could kind of own America's grocery list, it would be a pretty useful, you know, economic thing to, to have if we had the ability to have, and, and we got it to the point where, and, and it still is, you know, a, a pretty heavily used app. It's about 13 million downloads of the app and, uh, you know, um, many millions of, of grocery uh, items are sitting on a, on a big oven list right now ready to buy. And we had we offered an API, which is this kind of pipe. It's a data pipe that connects into our system. And we have, you know, vendors like uh, Samsung that that uses the API for some of the work that they do in their devices. We also have a partner called Isle Ahead. Um, Isle is in a grocery aisle, and they they make technology for grocery stores. And so, you know, they among the things they do is build uh, grocery store websites. And they, of course, have a need and an interest in recipe content as well um, and shopping list uh, uh, information. So they were an API partner of Big Evans, and I uh, came to know the founder pretty well. And in a similar story, I guess, to the Vacation Spot Expedia story, that partnership, which was always very friendly um, in a kind of a collaboration, because we at Big Oven, we were consumer facing entirely. And Isle Ahead is, is kind of, if you think about it, retailer facing, really they're, they're interested in selling uh, a platform into as many grocery stores that, that want to enable, uh, you know, shopping from home or curbside pickup or a lot of the things. And, and so, um, that turned out to be a really natural partner uh, to combine with. Um, and it's, I think, maybe another story that I'd encourage your listeners to think about the partners that they have, the biggest partners and the ones that can be their biggest partners um, and the most collaborative ones, the ones that are in sort of the adjacent space, maybe. In the case of Isle Ahead, it was an adjacent space in Expedia and Vacation Spot. It was an adjacent space to where we were in. But in, Ex- in the Expedia case, it was the most important, you know, uh, demand supplier. Um, and in Big Evans case, it was a new market. It was a new way to kind of repurpose a lot of the technology that we had already built to kind of augment it. Um, and uh, yeah, so I'm now I'm a board member there, and I'm I'm contributing some some ideas every now and then. But largely, it's a it's been a handoff kind of. Um, uh, a great new home for that business. And I'm excited to see what the team's going to build. And now what's next for you? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I'm kind of back to sandbox mode, John. I think, you know, I've had a whole lot of fun learning, you know, learning and, and relearning things like, you know, machine learning and uh, artificial intelligence, voice services, like, you know, the Echo, Amazon Echoes in sure. the world. And, yeah and Siri and um, it, it's, it's been phenomenal. So uh, I'm kind of at ideation phase right now, trying to see what, what kind of areas uh, are, are most interesting. Well, I know you're going to have a t- ton of people want to reach out and say, hi, is there, uh, is there a place that people can, can say hi if, if, uh, if they've heard this and, and wanted to do that? Do, do you, do you, is it okay to connect with you on LinkedIn or do you have a sure? Page? Yeah, what's, absolutely. What's yeah. For work related stuff, LinkedIn is probably the best way to go. Um, yeah. My name is Steve Murch, M-U-R-C-H. And, uh, maybe you'll put it in the show notes. Yeah. We'll put that in the show notes. Um, Steve, you are an incredible entrepreneur. You know, I, I was talking to my kids the other day and I was trying to describe to them intellectual curiosity, the desire to just learn for the sake of learning. And I actually use you as an example. I'm like, do you remember that guy, Steve? Do you remember he'd ask you questions all day long? And, uh, and they said, yeah, yeah, I kind of remember him. And I just think you're He's such a- World an, War II guy, right? Yeah, yeah. But, but much more than that. I think you're uh, an incredibly curious soul and it's obviously served you so well in business and in life. And I'm just so grateful for you to take the time to share with us today. That's awfully, awfully nice, John. You're doing a good service to the world that believes that Canadians are always nice. <laughs> so you're helping that reputation. I'm half Canadian. So that's the half, that's the half of me that's nice. Uh, 
Listen, thanks, Steve, thanks for, thanks for doing this. You enjoyed it. Take care. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.